Well, we return after a sort of Advent and Epiphany break. We return this morning to our series on 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 19. Looks like another chapter in this sad saga between Saul and David, but it becomes clear that it is rather a battle between Saul and Yahweh. And that is a fight that Saul, or anyone else for that matter, will tragically lose. We saw the last time uh, the early stages of Saul's descent into madness. And this led to this series of schemes using his daughters to take David's life, sort of murder by marriage. And then at the end of chapter 18, this is just prior to our text this morning, David has yet further military success, which provokes further envy and provokes murderous paranoia on the part of Saul. And so here this morning in chapter 19 in our text, you have an increasingly desperate Saul. He drops all cunning here, all pretense, and he issues a direct assassination order on David. And the chapter then consists of four episodes of Yahweh's deliverance of David, of his anointed king. And we'll call them, they're in the back inside page of your bulletin, the son, the spear, the spouse, the spirit. Four episodes of Yahweh's deliverance. So first the son, this is deliverance from Saul by the son of Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 19, that's where we are, verse 1. Saul told his son, the text makes you see this, he told his son, Jonathan, who's ironically now not taking his father's side, but David's. He told Jonathan and all the attendants, that means his staff, his royal counselors, in what was surely a top-secret meeting, he tells them, kill David. So this, this anger and this envy that Saul has is the stuff of murder. But of course we know that Jonathan has, as the text says, taken a great liking, a delight in David. He delights in David to the detriment of his bond with his father and to his own prospects for the throne. And... Even in ancient states, there are leaks. The state has leakers. And so Jonathan leaks the plot to David. He warns him. He sends him into hiding. He says, I'll talk to my father. I'll figure out what's going on. I'll come back and I'll let you know. Now remember, doing this is required because David and Jonathan had entered into a covenant, a covenant bond of friendship. And the covenant entails public political obligations to guard and to protect the other. Right? Love is not mere affection, it is covenant loyalty. And that's on display here. The text tells us that Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. Now, doing this right in the teeth of this enraged kingly and fatherly authority takes great courage. And Jonathan, there's a short appeal here from Jonathan to Saul in the text. But it is a thing of beauty. 
It's theologically grounded. Right? It's a use of sweet, clear, ethical reasoning. It's, wa- it's a wise appeal to what's left of his father's self-interest and what's left of his father's humanity. All the while he does it, Jonathan does, while acknowledging the power and the kingship which Saul still holds. Let not the king, notice, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. There's the ethical appeal. It's really an appeal to the golden rule. And what he has done has benefited you greatly, he says. There's the appeal to Saul's self-interest. It's in your self-interest to leave David alone. And here's a more emotional reminder, a more visceral reminder. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. He's just the sort of warrior servant you need. He risked his life for you and for the nation. And besides... Besides, Jonathan says, it was not David. It was the Lord who wrought a great victory for Israel. And then we learn something else in the narrative, which the narrator has hidden from us to this point. Jonathan reminds his father, he says, when you saw it, that is, when you saw the slaying of Goliath, you were glad. Remember, father, when you used to rejoice in David's accomplishments? Remember back then for a short while? It's a skillful appeal to a bond his father once had with David. And then finally, there's a direct appeal to not shed innocent blood, a command deeply woven into the Torah. And he he puts it elegantly in the form of a question to his father, lest the son appear to lecture the father. Why then, why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? It's really a masterpiece of wise, gentle engagement with the psychologically unstable Saul. Now, at this point, Saul is still open. He's still amenable, in seasons anyway, to reason. You can still, in pockets, reason with him. And he's persuaded by this speech of his son. He listened to Jonathan, the text says. And then in his typical, manic, pious-looking overreaction, he swears an oath. You'd think he'd be careful with oaths by now, but alas. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. And then he rescinds the assassination order. Jonathan tells David, David gets restored to the court. That's deliverance through the son of Saul. Secondly is the spear. War breaks out again. You can already predict where this is going to go. David shows his military skill. He strikes the Philistines. They flee. And Saul has a fresh episode of paranoia. For the third time, we're told, an evil spirit... From the Lord came on Saul. He's under the judgment of God, and the effect is a kind of demonic instability. So here we find Saul sitting in his house 
with his spear in his hand. He's never parted from this thing. You can almost picture him, one commentator said, keeping it under his pillow. I mean, how bizarre is this? The king sitting armed in his own palace, the power itself isolating him, his mind conjuring up fears of phantom enemies about to attack. David has not a spear, but he has a lyre in his hand. It's an early instance of music therapy. Right? He has a lyre, which he played to calm and soothe Saul's royaled soul, right? his alienating, alternating mood swings back and forth from the sanity into the darkness and back, from despair to moments of stability, back to despair, back to stability. And for the third time now, he tries to pin David to the wall with the spear, So he's now in this behavioral pattern of compulsive repetition. It's this vicious circle. He's engulfed in it. And it manifests itself like a mental illness with occasional violent outbursts. This is a man who just swore an oath not to kill David. Quickly breaks it. Previously, he insisted on enforcing an oath to kill a bunch of people. But this is an oath to protect life, and he easily dispenses with it. Though by now, Saul is caught in the grip of forces that are larger than him and beyond his control. This is why the Bible depicts sin as a power, as a principality. It is not subject to the rules of rational engagement. So David eludes him. Saul drives the spear into the wall, and the narrator cleverly uses, when he speaks of the spear being driven into the wall, it's the same word that he used a couple verses before saying that David struck the Philistines. The point is, Saul is treating David like a Philistine enemy. That night, David makes his escape. That's the spear. The third act of deliverance is from the spouse. He flees to his home. Saul sends henchmen to, to watch the house and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, again the text tells you David's wife, not Saul's daughter, David's wife, she must have been a keen observer of something, of some movement or something outside the house. She warns David. So for the second time, Saul's going to be foiled by his own children. And she says to him urgently, run for your life. She lets him down through a window. He flees. He escapes. Five times in the chapter, the word for elude or escape is used. It's the theme of the chapter. So she creates this fake bed scene using a household idol. Now, why David has these household idols in his house, we don't know, but it's a sign that things on the ground in Israel are probably a mixed bag. She lays the image or the statue in the bed, and she covers it, and she puts goat hair on the head. The story, of course, to a careful reader, echoes back to Rachel fleeing her father with Jacob and also engaging and hiding their household idols. A lot of household idols across hundreds of years in Israel. 
The common thread here, though, is daughters, loyal to their husbands, rebelling against hostile, unreasonable fathers. And here it's a part of a delay tactic to give David a head start, because he's already gone. So the men are sent in. She says he's ill. The men go back to Saul. Saul says, bring him here in his bed. We'll kill him there. This is complete derangement now, or almost complete derangement. Saul can and will go lower than this. So they enter the house and they find the dummy in the bed. And Saul asks his daughter, why have you deceived me like this? And in answer to the question, why have you deceived me? She deceives him again. She says, and this is really an unnecessary lie. It's only going to further damage David in Saul's eyes. She basically says, I had to let him go. He threatened to kill me. It's interesting, right? One wonders about the marriage. We're we're told that Michael loved David. We're never told that he loved her. She speaks in these scenes. He's silent. And all through this section of 1 Samuel, the people around David, they're fairly transparent. You, You hear from them, and you can actually see something of their inner thoughts, their inner world. But David, his speech is restrained. He's seen largely as a public political actor, and his interior motives are hidden from us. It is part of the narrator's way of creating a kind of holy aura around David, like a mysterious shrouding that keeps us guessing at what he's actually thinking and reminds us that he's the divinely protected future king. And that brings me to the final point, the fourth episode, the spirit. So... He's escaped again. By the way, if you're counting, that is six attempts on David's life by Saul. Six. He goes, he goes to Samuel at, at Ramoth, and then they go to a little town called Nioth. This, this whole trip is about two miles from where he is. That's all he goes. He gets out the window at night. He ends up two miles away. But Saul has a network of spies, and they find out that that's where he is. Sends more men to capture him. And then we get this very strange sequence of events at the end of this chapter. These men come. right? They encounter a band of prophets. And Saul's men prophesy. They go back and tell Saul. He sends men a second time and they prophesy. Goes back a third time. He sends men a third time and they fall down. They prophesy. Now, we don't know a lot about what this prophesying looked like or what it entailed. But I think the point of the text, the message is very clear. It's that the Spirit of God, through Samuel and the prophets, is now himself the defender of David, David's protector. And then the text ends in this scene where Saul himself is going to go. And this echoes back. And this is one of the pieces of the literary brilliance of 1 Samuel, the way the narrator brackets stuff off and echoes back to the beginning. This goes way back to a young Saul who came into town looking for his father's donkey and asked, where is Samuel? Right? Now we have an aging Saul coming into town looking for Samuel again, who's now with David. And the spirit which we were told had departed from Saul. Remember that. Comes upon him. And here, this is a judgment. 
This is a judgment. And he walked along prophesying, probably in some sort of ecstatic frenzy. He strips off his clothes. He prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lays naked all day and all night, prostrate, paralyzed by the spirit. And this scene, the narrator tells us, this is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? This is another piece of masterful bracketing. You'll recall that that saying, is Saul also among the prophets, goes all the way back to his first encounter with Samuel in chapter 10. He's anointed by Samuel, and Samuel says there'll be a series of signs. The ultimate or the climactic sign will be, Saul, that on your way home, you're going to meet a band of prophets. The Spirit will come upon you. You will prophesy too, and you'll be changed into another man. And that comes to pass, and the people say, is Saul among the prophets? But back then, of a young Saul, this was said in surprise. This was said in hope. This was said with all the freshness of youth in the belief that this this young man, mostly barely, not a boy at this point, but just barely beyond that, he's being marked out for special service, equipped by the Spirit, for the daunting task of kingship. And here, by the same spirit, he becomes another man of a crazed sort, a madman of the spirit, stripped of his garments, delegitimized, not only physically naked, symbolically stripped and divested of his kingship, lying on the ground, writhing. If David is masked by the narrator, Saul is always unmasked exposed and spilled out all over the floor. And now here then, the proverb now becomes a joke, a humiliating taunt, a byword. Is Saul also among the prophets? He has become a parody of his former self. I want to say a word about the Spirit of God here. In these stories... The, you know, the human, the human political drama, the human psychological drama is in the foreground, but it's shrouded by these mysterious, ungraspable, uncontrollable forces in the background, forces which defy human understanding and which transcend the realm of politics or psychology. So the spirit is the wind or the breath of the God of Israel and is not to be trifled with. The spirit is, in Robert Alter's words, a high-voltage current in the narrative. It's very dangerous business. And the same spirit which empowers can, given persistent disobedience, such as we've seen in Saul, that same spirit can paralyze and destroy. And the Hebrew Bible makes no excuse for this. It just says, Saul was afflicted by an evil spirit from the Lord. It goes on. It will not tame this. It will not domesticate this mystery. Saul is now tormented by the Spirit. He is among the prophets as a laughingstock. He is an unraveling, disintegrated man. David, of course, is silent. We don't hear from him. But the future course of the struggle between Saul and David is now physically, graphically on display in this text. David is standing 
with Samuel and the prophets. Saul is writhing on the floor naked in some sort of crazed madness. So that's the story. I want to conclude with a couple of applications. The text, as strange as it is, and as many questions as it may raise for us, the text is clear. It is about the myriad of ways that the Spirit of God can deliver his servant. Right? Maybe quietly through a son. Maybe through David's own ingenuity. Maybe deceptively through a spouse. Maybe dramatically by driving an enemy mad. But the Lord has, Psalm 2 tells us this, he has set his anointed son, his king, in Zion. And he scoffs. He laughs in derision at those who seek to overthrow his rule. Indeed, the psalm says he will distress them. Saul is in distress because he has set his face against the anointed king. He is being distressed by the wrath of Yahweh. He will distress them in his wrath, Psalm 2. So here, if we say the point is about deliverance, here is the point of the points. The Davidic king will mount the throne against all opposition. Right? The Davidic king will mount the throne against all opposition. First in David, and later, of course, in the one whom David is foreshadowing, the greater David, Jesus the Christ, the anointed Davidic king. And so when he appears, we see in the New Testament, what do we see? We see irrational madmen and murderous hatred against him from the beginning. And yet, right, he eludes, he escapes from his paranoid political and religious foes, from Herod and from every attempt to kill him. For his enemies could do nothing to him before his time. We saw that in the gospel lesson. And of course, when Christ appears, inaugurating his reign, he has others, right? Those who love him, those who assist him, those who leave other loyalties to follow him. He has Saul's and he has Jonathan's and Michael's. He has enemies. And among the enemies, there are people with the same mental derangement that Saul has. They see him as a threat to their little kingdoms and their self-rule. And so what does this text say to us? Well, again, I think it's clear. It says you are to submit to the Lord's Christ, the son of David, and to be Jonathan's and Michael's. Not crazed Saul's clinging to your own autonomy, clinging to what you cannot keep. This is, in fact, how Jesus presents himself, right? This is how he preaches. He presents a crisis. He confronts us with this stark choice. These are the options. Christ or madness. Christ or insanity. Christ or nothing. Nihilism. Christ or... Or judgment. Or put it this way. Christ or personal disintegration. Because he's the fully integrated human being. To reject him is to decide to unravel. Because he's the logos, the rationality, the deep sanity and the mystery of all things. 
We choose him or we choose our own Saul-like hells. Choose Christ. Saul lost his battle with Yahweh and no one wins their battle against his Christ. Flee to him who was kept for your safety. The one who keeps Israel's king keeps Israel. The Lord who watches over you neither slumbers nor sleeps. Now, it's true, it's often not this dramatic. But these are ultimately the choices for human beings. And the Lord's providence and protection will often be quiet. But it's also quite probably against malign forces you know nothing of. He's your unresting protector and deliverer. That's the gospel in this text. Thus, even as David's rise to the throne could not be thwarted, and Christ's kingdom cannot be thwarted, that means you are immortal until your work in the kingdom is finished. The work that God has predestined for you to walk in cannot be thwarted. So, as God did for David, so he does for you because you are in the greater David. The angel of the Lord camps around the ones who fear him and delivers them, for they are in danger left to themselves. What about the spirit? That high voltage current. Life-giving, but also dangerous. In Christ, the spirit hovers over you, and you know what? Places you two among the prophets. In the sense, the good sense of the proverb. The sense it was originally intended for Saul. Because you are among the anointed body of Christ, the Davidic king. And in that body, the Lord, the deliverer of David, and his greater son keeps you from evil. He keeps your life. And there you are safe. Safe in your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.